invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. And we're going to read uh, chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, and read through uh, chapter 15, verse 4. I don't think the, um, the chapter headings are uh, placed well um, in this particular instance. And so this text, I think, really holds together as uh, we look this morning at the great victory of Christ and, uh, over, uh, and, and we see that in the rejoicing of the saints in heaven and the judgments of God on earth. Uh, so Revelation chapter 14... This is God's holy inspired word, and this is Jesus' message for the church today. Let's give it uh, our attention. John uh, sees a vision, and so he writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the, living, the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water." Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, 
And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations." Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So far the reading in God's word. Let's ask his blessing. (coughs) God in heaven, now as we come before these great and awesome things, we ask your spirit, the spirit that spoke these words, We ask that that spirit would come now and open our eyes, that we might see with John the glory of God, and be, Lord, inclined to worship him alone, to give him all glory. We thank you, Lord, that you promised to meet with us and to, Lord, give us ears to hear, so we ask that you would do just that. Now, in Jesus' name, amen. This is a a big text. Uh, not just a big text uh, in, number, in, in, in terms of the number of the words that we have here. This is, this is stunning, um, inspiring, thrilling, magnificent truths. These are things that the angels of heaven long to look into and, and are uh, continually praising God because of. Uh, I, I'm convinced that if we would keep these views, these visions that John has, if, if they could be somehow just imprinted on our minds... It would transform the way that we live. Uh, it would drive away our fears. It would purify our minds. Uh, th- these visions have the power to invigorate our prayer. Uh, there's almost nothing more empowering when you're in the midst of conflict or in the midst of sorrow or trial. There's nothing more empowering than the news of certain victory and the presence and the power of God right now in your life. And that is what Jesus is trying to communicate to the church. That's what he is communicating uh, to his church in Revelation chapter 14. Uh, The the thrill of chapter 14 is, is, is caught when you read it in its context immediately following chapters 12 and 13. If you were here for those messages, you remember in chapter 12, we had the, uh, the story or the vision of this great red dragon who makes war on the church. And then in chapter 13, we, we see that this dragon has accomplices. He, there's two beasts, the sea beast and the earth beast, and uh, they wield their demonic influence in the world that you and I, uh, where we live, uh, and they wield that demonic influence through deception, through lies, and through coercion. 
It's clear from chapters 12 and 13, Jesus does not want us to be ignorant about the world in which we live. He does not want us to be ignorant about the spiritual powers of darkness. And I don't think you need to be a prophet or a, uh, uh, have some um, extraordinary ability to sense that the powers of darkness are increasingly uh, gaining control in our world. If you look all over the globe, Christians are being persecuted um, almost anywhere you want to point your finger. Uh, Christians are being persecuted at a higher rate than any other time in the history of the church. And, and here at home, we, we sense that the, the, the powers of deception and coercion are gaining the upper hand. We, we live in a post-Christian society. It's, things are changing and have changed. And the hordes of hell are at work to overthrow every vestige of the rule and the truth of Almighty God. The spirit of our age, friends, is a demonic spirit. It is not friendly to the things of God. In fact, it is hostile and unapologetically at war with God. That's just the, the truth. We live in a dark and evil age. We're living in the reality of Revelations, Revelation 13. Uh, we are face to face with the truth of the beast. Uh, Paul wants uh, the church uh, to know in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are um, battling with cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now that's been going on since Jesus ascended, but we're, uh, you, you see in the history of the church, you see maybe a, a rise and decline of, the, uh, of, the, of those powers. Today we're seeing a rise. However, the story doesn't end with chapter 13. Uh, immediately following and direct answer to the work of the devil and the, the rage of the devil in chapters 12 and 13, we have the victory of King Jesus in chapter 14. And we see the victory of Christ uh, in the songs of the redeemed saints in heaven. And so we have four scenes bookended by visions of heaven. And then in the middle we have the victory of Jesus Christ. Uh, as the gospel is proclaimed and as the judgment of God is uh, poured out on the earth. And, and so we're going to have four scenes this morning based right out of the text. Um, each scene begins with the words, then I looked or then I saw. I'm not sure why the ESV uses looked and saw, two different words. It's the exact same word in the Greek. Then I saw, then I saw, verse 1 of chapter 14, verse 6, verse 14, and then again chapters 15, 1. So what we're going to see this morning is, is the reality of the victory of Christ uh, seen in the, the songs of the saints in heaven and seen in the proclamation of salvation and judgment here on earth. Let's give our attention then to the text. First scene, the king and his people, verses 1 through 5. And here again, in direct contrast to the, uh, the devil's war against the church. Remember, he's raging against the church. He knows his time is short. Uh, he wants to destroy the church. And Jesus uh, shows us the victory of the church here in the beginning of chapter 14. Uh, you see the lamb. 
victorious. He's standing on Mount Zion. He's reigning on Mount Zion. Mount Zion was uh, the, the uh, actual mount that uh, King David, uh, where he built uh, Jerusalem and he built the temple. It became known as the, the uh, capital city of Jerusalem. It was the place where the throne was. And it was the place where God himself dwelt there in the temple. Mount Zion stands for the kingdom of God. Well, that was true literally, physically in Old Testament Israel. It's true spiritually and truly now in the New Testament. Uh, Mount Zion refers to the rule and reign of God. And it refers to the, specifically here, the heavenly place where the dwelling of God and the throne room where God reigns, where King Jesus rules. And he's standing there reigning, but he's not alone. There's 144,000 saints with him. Now, we, we saw that number 144,000 back in chapter 7. We noted then that this number is not literal. It stands for the church throughout the ages. And so you have the uh, 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 um, signifying the Old Testament people of God, the, the sons of Jacob. A 12 in the New Testament, the 12 apostles representing the New Testament church, times a thousand, which in those days, is an, it just stands for a number that's infinite. You can't count. Twelve times twelve times a thousand stands for this vast, innumerable host that are called uh, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And they are, um, they've been sealed. We saw that again in chapter 7. Sealed with the name of God on their forehead, the name of Jesus and of the Father, which means that God has specifically uh, claimed these people, they belong to Him, and they are protected by Him. That no one can possibly snatch away those who are sealed to, to God away from God. And they are there in the presence of God, victoriously singing. That's the evidence of the victory. In the context of war, songs are the prerogative of the conquerors. You don't have loser songs, right? So when the football team wins a game, they have one song. When they lose a game, they have another song. You don't sing when you lose. You have victory songs. And John hears the thunderous roar of God's saints in victorious, united uh, anthems of praise to God. They're in the presence of God. I, it, it would be, I would just encourage you to, if you ever have a moment to listen to the greatest piece of music you know uh, that just grabs your soul and lifts it up and then magnify it by a million, and that's going to be what this choir will be like in heaven. There is majesty and, and weight and thunderous glory to this scene and to this song. I recently read a, a sports writer trying to describe what it's like to be in the big house when, uh, when Michigan scores a, a touchdown and, uh, and the band strikes up, hail to the victor's valiant. And he says it's like it, it's being a part of the largest choir on earth as every voice takes up the song. Well, that might give you a teeny little sense, but it pales really in every way. There you have 110,000 people. Uh, not all of them in their in full possession of their faculties, and they're, they're, they're singing, right, because a man carried a ball over a line in the ground. That's what they're singing about. And, and, and the team gets six points for that. This, right, is the ransomed, redeemed people of God 
who are celebrating the fact that someone has conquered the power of hell. That someone suffered the holy wrath of God due to them and their sin and yet by his suffering has rescued and ransomed them from their sin and has made them to be a kingdom and priest to God has brought them into everlasting life in the presence of God and that someone is making everything new. That's worth singing about. And they'll sing forever. Not literally, but, but in truth, that's going to be the song of the new heaven and the new earth. Now, the, notice we're told that they're singing a new song that no one could learn except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. This song is a song only the 144,000 know. And the reason is because only those who have experienced the great redemption of God in Christ can sing about it. In other words, holy angels can't sing this song. Lost sinners can't sing this song. Holy angels, because they are not in need of that great redemption, they haven't experienced it. Lost sinners, because they desperately need it, but do not experience it either. And so you see, they've never experienced the saving grace of God, and consequently, they can never sing in truth Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. They can't sing that song. They can't sing my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. They don't know that song. They can't sing amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Only the saints know that song. Only the saints can sing that song. This is their story. This is their song. Is it your song? Do you, do you really know those songs? Because the saints, if heaven, they alone truly know it. They've experienced it. And John emphasizes the distinct nature and identity of these choir members when he, when he uh, in verses 4 and 5, repeatedly uses the word, the, the word these. If, if you have your Bible, and I encourage you to have your Bible uh, open as we go through here. So verse 4, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind, and their, in, in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. It's just, he, he wants you to notice these people. It is distinct, and it is marked by, um, this, this group of people is marked by devotion to God and, and to the truth of God. And so they've not defiled themselves with women. This does not mean, contrary to the teaching of the uh, portions of, the, of the, uh, the, the early church, that sexual activity is inherently defiling. So you'd have, you'd have people taking vows of celibacy as though celibacy is a more holy lifestyle than, uh, than godly marriage. It's just not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. Sex between a husband and wife is God-glorifying, and it is good and pleasing to God. 
This is a reference to Old Testament holy warfare. When um, the, the, the soldiers, the warriors, as they were about to enter into battle, would consecrate themselves to God by refraining from sexual activity with their wife. It's a sign of wholehearted devotion and consecration to God's cause, God's battle. It says in a tangible way that there's something more valuable in this world than even marriage and family and sexual uh, engagement with your wife. There's something more precious, more significant. It's a point that the church today could really, I think, think about again. You see, the the point is that these saints have fought the good fight of faith with devotion. They consecrated themselves to God, body and soul. They, as Paul says in in Romans 12, they presented their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's what defines the saints of God. A devotion, a commitment to Him. And in their mouth, no lie was found. They're blameless. Doesn't mean they're perfect. It just means that they're marked by truth, not by deception and lies. Again, Jesus is is, um, striving to show us that that there are two groups in the world, right? Those who belong to uh, the kingdom of darkness and those who belong to the kingdom of light. And there are distinguishing characteristics. And lying, deception... Falsehood is the distinguishing characteristic of the kingdom of darkness. Truth, integrity, specifically God's truth, is the distinguishing mark of God's people. And so, there's no lie in their mouth. They reject the deception of the beast. They reject lies. Now again, these are the evidences of their identity, not the basis of their identity. Uh, In other words, you don't get to be one of the redeemed by showing a sufficient amount of devotion and integrity. To be redeemed is to be purchased out of your sin, out of your lies and impurity, right, by the blood of Christ, bought back for God. As we're going to see tonight in the story of, uh, of Gomer in Hosea, a Jesus doesn't purchase the best and the brightest. He redeems the immoral, right? The corrupt. That's the glory of grace. But this is the power of grace. If you are redeemed, the evidence will be a life that is increasingly marked by a concern for Christ, a concern for his cause, a desire to follow him. Where he leads, I will follow. Notice, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Friend, that, that just means that this morning, if, you, if, if in truth you do not have a, a desire to follow Jesus, something's wrong. If in truth you, you really aren't compelled to want to be like him, to want to engage in his cause, if it's really end of the day simply about what your heart, uh, you just want to live your life, do your thing, something's fundamentally wrong with your faith. Well, this is then the first scene. We just have a scene of these, these saints in heaven 
worshiping, rejoicing, celebrating the victory of Jesus. I want to be in that number. I hope you do too. And then the second scene is the message of the angels on earth. There's three angels in verses 6 through 12, and they're proclaiming, they're speaking. Notice the first is proclaiming an eternal gospel for those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And here's the proclamation. Here's the gospel. Verse 7. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. The good news is a call to worship God and give him glory. Glory. That's, that's the message. And it's spoken to people who are in the world, who've bowed to the beast, who've worshipped the image, who've given themselves to the principalities, powers of this world. They are commanded and invited to repent and turn to God and to give God and God alone the glory. And it's a message of great urgency because the hour of his judgment has come. This is the urgency, friends, of gospel ministry. This is, the, this is the urgency behind planning churches and sending missionaries and preaching the gospel uh, here Sunday after Sunday. The hour of judgment is near. Repentance is necessary. But though the hour is near, it's not yet here. See, the, So this is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. It's, it's, it's an urgent, urgent message. One of, one, of the, uh, one of the things that the devil has used to, to sort of blunt the sword of the gospel message in churches today is to, is to sort of just blunt the idea that there's, there's a judgment day coming. And that it is critical that you be prepared for judgment day. And so the church is on to other things, talking about other topics, and maybe even explaining some of the other benefits of the gospel. All well and good, but you see, if this is the message that Jesus has called the church to proclaim in a lost world, judgment day is coming. And we can, we can sort of be embarrassed by that, by, by that message. It, it just sounds awfully stern. It, it sounds exclusivistic. It sounds, it sounds melodramatic, maybe a little bit over the top. Well, it's, it's, this is the gospel message. That Jesus Christ has been given by God for a lo- to a lost world that's under judgment. And, 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 and the day is coming when the wrath of God is going to be poured out. That's the message of the second angel. Fallen, fallen, verse 8, is Babylon the great. She who made the nations drink the wine of the passions or the rage of her sexual immorality. If Mount Zion stands for the city of God and the kingdom of God, Babylon will stand, as we're going to see in chapter 18, Babylon stands for the city of man, the unholy city of man. It is defined by perversion and rage against God. And we'll get to that more in chapter 18. The message is what matters here, and the message is that though the city of man seems to be doing well, though the powers of darkness seem to be ascending, the fact is, so certain is their defeat, so complete is the conquest 
of Christ that we can already speak of Babylon as fallen in the past tense. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That the city of Babylon, the city of man, is a dead man walking, a dead city walking. Its sentence is that sure. And its destruction is is near. And that's the message of the third angel. It's a promise from God that those who refuse to worship the beast and give God the glory, those who refuse to do so, will experience the full fury of the wrath of God. Verse 10. They will drink the wine of God's wrath poured in full strength into the cup of his anger. They will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. There are those who say that this is simply symbolic language and that a loving God will never torment people with fire and sulfur. Uh, It may well be symbolic language, friends, but be assured that the reality will not be less a torment than the symbol. This isn't hyperbole. Jesus wants this world to understand, he wants his church to understand, there is a place called hell, and it is a place of awful and unending torment. Verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Now, that is a hard truth in our relativistic age. And it's a hard truth even, I know, for, for many in the church. That, that, that there, uh, you've wrestled with this. I've wrestled with this. Can it be just for God to punish people forever and ever and ever for, a, for a, a life filled with a finite number of sins? And what about those who've never had a chance to hear the gospel? Hell seems, doesn't it at times, doesn't it seem too much, too punitive, too awful a thing for a, for a loving God to do? And, if, and if, you've, if you've had those thoughts, if you've had those questions, let me just suggest this quickly. Is it possible that hell seems too much and too punitive because the glory of God seems too small to us? That, that, can we believe that there are no angels in heaven secretly talking together and saying, I just, I just don't get hell? We're going to see in chapter 19 that when, when Babylon is destroyed and, and evil is thrown into lakes of fire, that the church, now seeing the glory of God, celebrates. Now, I know, I know that sounds hard, but, but, but isn't, it, isn't it possible that the reason these things don't maybe resonate or make immediate sense to us is simply because we have not yet seen what angels know. And that there's an inestimable glory to God that once seen and known makes this scene make not only perfect sense but be an object of praise for the saints. Is it possible that the glory of God is simply that Awesome and overwhelming and, and, and deserving of worship. You see, it's the glory of God that's on the line here. 
The great sin of man revealed here is his refusal to worship God as God. In the end, people don't go to hell for their indiscretions, their perversions, their their lies and deceptions. People go to hell for their idolatry. Verse 11 tells us that the punishment of hell is for these worshipers of the beast and its image. Just like the people of God are defined by devotion to God and and, and truth. Those who uh, are lost are defined by worship of the beast and its image. They refuse to honor God. They refuse to give God glory. You'll find exactly the same thing in Romans chapter 1. And they give their worship and their allegiance to the beast instead. See, friends... the issue on the table is, is God worthy of his worship or not? Is the glory of God, is, is God worthy of his worship or not? And the fundamental tenet of scripture is, yes, he is. And the driving principle behind both the salvation of sinners and the judgment of sinners is exactly this, God is worthy of his worship. Why did Jesus come to die? It wasn't, first of all, to save you from your sin. It was, first of all, to gather worshipers so that his Father might receive the glory due to him. And so Jesus prays before the cross, glorify your name. That's why he came. And why are sinners condemned? So that God, in his his justice and righteousness, would receive the glory due to him. That's what's on the line. And those who refuse to worship God and give Him glory, who refuse to acknowledge God as God, will find that they spend eternity then without God. No peace, no rest, no shelter ever. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an experience too awful to actually capture with words. We don't know that, what that darkness is like. There's, there's nothing comparable Right, in this world. Now, all I'm asking this morning is that you just recognize this, is, this isn't the teaching of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. This isn't, this isn't some interesting but slightly kiltered uh, viewpoint of Pastor Dale. This isn't a Reformed doctrine. This is what Jesus says to his church. And just let the weight of that Settle on you, because we are people who live in a relativistic culture, and we are, we are formed by that culture more than we know. And so let's let the Word of God purify and purge and correct and straighten. Now again, in direct contrast, and you'll have this going on throughout this text, in contrast to the restlessness and the torment of the lost, there's the, the rest and blessedness of the redeemed. Jesus immediately, verse 13, speaks a message of comfort. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. As as I was going through this text, that verse doesn't follow the flow of the text. We've got the saints in heaven, we've got a scene of judgment, scene two, another scene of judgment, scene three, and then the saints of heaven. And Jesus inserts this verse Because he wants us to get it. That in the context of judgment, there is blessedness for those who are in Christ. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. Blessed indeed. That they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. 
And Jesus says, John, write it down. Get this down. Communicate this to the church. The blessedness of those who've gone to be with the Lord, those who've died in the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson makes the excellent point that that, that their deeds follow them, they do not precede them. In other words, our deeds will not open the door of heaven to us. Jesus opens the door of heaven for us. Jesus alone is able to do that. But when we enter that door in the Lord, we will find that our deeds follow us. We will find to maybe uh, most likely our astonishment that Jesus was actually in our life bearing fruit through grace. That there actually are acts of kindness and, and obedience and love and, and sacrifice as the Spirit was at work in our life and, and those deeds will, will, will follow us into heaven and Jesus will happily reward us for them. That God's children do not enter heaven uh, without their deeds worked by the grace and power of God following them. I just have great happiness thinking about loved ones I know who are right now in the presence of Jesus and, and receiving the reward of his grace in their life. They're blessed, blessed indeed. Well, we got to move, and we're going to move somewhat quickly here is the last two scenes. The scene three is the reaping of the earth. Just let me point out quickly, there's two harvests here. The harvest of grain and the harvest of, of grapes. The harvest of grain is verse 15. You don't see the word grain in your text. That's uh, because the word ripe uh, there is the word specifically used for a grain, for, um, for corn, for oats, barley. It's, it's a yellow stalk with dried kernels. That's what ripe there means. And so there's a harvest here of grain as Jesus gathers the earth at the end of, his, uh, end, of the end of time, all those who belong to him, this is the harvest of the righteous, the harvest of those who believed. This is the harvest of all God's children as he, as he gathers them and brings them to himself. The seed of the gospel was sown, it bore fruit, Jesus now reaps that harvest. That's the harvest of grain. The harvest of grapes is a harvest unto judgment. It's a devastating harvesting. The word ripe there, it refers to grapes that are, that are engorged and, and, uh, and, and ready to be picked and crushed in the wine press. And Jesus again is telling us that as the world continues in its idolatry, as men and women continue in their rage against God, in their sexual perversions, the earth is slowly ripening for judgment day. So pornography and promiscuity and gay pride parades look like celebrations of human freedom and autonomy. That's what they look like. They're actually a ripening process as the spiritual grapes of this world are becoming swollen with evil, begging to be harvested, and they will be. They will be. And Jesus says they will be cast into the great winepress of the wrath and fury of God. And that, and, and, and that winepress, will be, they will be trampled there, and blood will flow from that winepress as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia, that is just roughly the length of Israel from the southern border to the north. In other words, this is worldwide judgment. There will be no one who escapes, no place to hide. This is the harvest of the last day for those who worship the beast. And once again, as we wrap up in direct contrast, we see the victory of the redeemed. 
Scene four, then I saw, great and amazing. And here are the saints singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. This is a victory song. A victory song. The song of Moses, remember when the song of Moses was sung? That's when Exodus chapter 15, when God had destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea and had rescued the Israelites. They stood there on the, sh- on the shore and they sang a song of victory. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Well, now we're singing not just the song of Moses, but the song of the Lamb. Of, we're singing of a greater victory as, as Jesus Christ has triumphed gloriously and in crushing the devil and his host forever. This is the song of heaven, and it ascribes glory, glory, glory to God. What I want you to see as we wrap up is that this is a song that we can sing now. This is not just about things that will happen someday down the road. We can sing these songs, friends, now. I remember uh, December 1983, I was um, a student at Dort College, and uh, the college community was stunned to hear that Jack Grotenheis, the 27-year-old son of Dale Grotenheis, choir director, had been killed in Arizona in, in an accident. Uh, he was a beloved son of the college community. I, I, I did not know him, but it was clear that many, many people did. Uh, he was a teacher like his dad and um, had, a, had a young wife who left behind. Uh, Dr. Grotenheis was obviously stunned, his, his, his wife as well, by the loss of their eldest son. And um, in his grief and stunned uh, shock and um, heartache, his wife... Um, encouraged him to go into his study, close the door, and turn his grief into something productive, to write a song, something that could be sung uh, by the Dort Choir. And so he wrote the song called The Song of Triumph, taken directly, word for word, from Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. Great and marvelous are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. My question to you is, how do you sing... Great and marvelous are your deeds, O Lord, when he's taking your son. How do, you, how do you sing great and marvelous are your deeds? Who shall not fear and glorify you? How do you, how do you sing that in view of the death of your son? Well, the, the, the answer, of course, that he wasn't writing in view of the death of his son. He was writing in view of the life of his son. That death because of Jesus Christ is a foe, but a conquered foe. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died and rose triumphant over death and hell. And that Jesus reigns and has promised to make everything new. And that the dead who die in the Lord are blessed right now. And that one day we are going to join the saints of God in a new heaven and earth. And that no matter what happens in your life today... No matter what happens in your life today, disease, trauma, loss, this fact remains. There is a kingdom of God and there is a king who reigns and you by grace belong to that kingdom and you belong to that king and that kingdom will never be shaken. 
And by the power of God, you will be held. And that Jesus who reigns at the right hand knows your name. He sealed you to himself. You belong to him. If you've come and confessed your faith, confessed your sin, trusted in him, you belong to Christ. You're not just a Christian, meaning you're not just a person that goes to church. If you've come to Jesus Christ in confession and faith, friend, you are a child of the king. And and, and, and you are invited and empowered to sing the songs of the Lamb. Let's start then today. And let's continue today. Let's be people who sing the glory of God, the victory of Jesus Christ, until he comes again. Amen. Our God and Father in heaven, Lord, these are weighty, heavy, wonderful things to hear. And God in heaven, I I pray that you would inscribe these truths on our heart. We are small people in so many ways, and our minds struggle to grasp the glory that you have promised us in Christ. But Father, I, I, I just pray the Spirit would overcome our limitations and, and inscribe these truths on our hearts so that it changes how we think and how we feel and how we live. And Lord, if there are any here today who are yet caught in the bondage of idolatry, that this truth, Lord, would, would be a lifeline and that your Spirit would bring them to bow the knee to Christ and and to worship him in truth. Lord, I, we're so needy, and we stand, Lord, at the crosshairs of the devil's fury. But I thank you that we are, Lord, in the center, in the palm of your hand, and that we need fear nothing, for we can lose nothing if we are in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that our loved ones who have died in the Lord are enjoying great blessedness today and we can, we can rejoice in their victory as we look forward to the full experience of our own. And so, Lord, may these truths, these glorious, awesome truths, form us in this world and prepare us for the world to come. In Jesus' name, amen.